Herzlich willkommen zu einer neuen Episode von Lateral Conversations, meinem mehr oder weniger regelmäßigen Podcast. Mein Name ist Thomas Mark. Lateral Conversations, ich habe da endlich einen Namen gefunden. Ich habe da einen englischsprachigen Namen gewählt, weil ich ab dieser Episode auch englischsprachige Gäste einlade. Wie schon gesagt, das Ganze soll weniger ein Gespräch in einem strengen Interviewstil sein, sondern mehr ein, ein offenes Gespräch, deshalb Conversations. Lateral, Lateral Conversations, der Begriff ist, ist ein bisschen komplexer, stammt ursprünglich von Edward de Bono und seinem Konzept des lateralen Denkens. Umgangssprachlich meint er damit so eine Form von Querdenken, das heißt eine Weise, in der man nicht nur analytisch vorgeht, sondern in, in der durchaus subjektive, intuitive Denkvorgänge integriert werden, in dem man gängige Denkmuster verlässt, versucht neue Lösungen zu generieren für gegebene Problemstellungen und vor allen Dingen, indem man auch seine eigenen Überzeugungen und Glaubenssätze in gewisser Hinsicht auch Narrative in, in Frage stellen kann. Und, so. und das bezeichnete er damals als laterales Denken. Und ich finde den Begriff ganz schön, weil ich mir halt Gespräche in dieser Form vorstelle, das heißt laterale Gespräche, lateral conversations, wo man sich mit anderen Weltsichten auseinandersetzt, wo man sich selbst in Frage stellen kann, wo man neue Sachen dazulernt. Ich habe neulich einen Artikel gelesen von Thomas Metzinger, der drehte sich über Spiritualität und intellektuelle Redlichkeit. Äh, es ist ein super Artikel, den findet ihr überall im Netz, wenn ihr da mal googelt. Was so besonders an, an, an diesem Artikel ist, dass er halt als eines der wesentlichen Kennzeichen von Spiritualität die intellektuelle Redlichkeit identifiziert. Und unter anderem meint er als intellektuelle Redlichkeit halt die Fähigkeit, seine eigenen Glaubenssätze und Überzeugungen in Frage stellen zu können. Das heißt, für ihn ist, und das sagt er ganz explizit, das Gegenteil von Religion nicht Wissenschaft, sondern Spiritualität. Weil Spiritualität eben ideologiefrei gedacht werden muss. Und das ist, ein ganz wichtiger, ist eine ganz wichtige Eigenschaft der Spiritualität, wo es ja letztendlich darum geht, auch in gewisser Hinsicht Licht in die Aspekte des Geistes und der Psyche zu bringen, die einem normalerweise verschlossen sind äh, und wo einem Ideologie letztendlich auch nicht sonderlich weiterhilft, diese möglicherweise dunklen Bereiche mit Licht zu füllen. Wie dem aber auch sei, mir dreht sich das im Wesentlichen darum, hier laterale Gespräche zu führen, Gespräche zu führen, wo man bereit ist, seine eigenen Glaubenssätze in Frage zu stellen, seine eigenen Überzeugungen, seine eigenen Ideologien und da zu neuen Perspektiven kommen kann und neuen Arten und Weisen des Denkens. Wie ihr sicher mitbekommen habt, laufen bislang alle Podcasts, die ich hier mache, via Skype. Das ist natürlich auf der einen Seite total schön, weil man relativ spontan Gäste einladen kann und sich mit denen unterhalten kann. 
und man relativ wenig Vorbereitungszeit hat. Auf der anderen Seite ist es natürlich so, dass wenn man sich persönlich trifft und äh, sich schon mal ein bisschen beschnuppern kann und dann direkt unter vier Augen sich gegenübersetzt, um das Gespräch zu machen, dass da natürlich ein ganz anderer Informations- und Gesprächsfluss auftaucht. Das ist für mich insofern ein Problem, weil ich bin hier natürlich auf Mallorca und äh, mal kurz nach Berlin zu fliegen oder nach Barcelona oder äh, wo die interessanten Leute halt sitzen, das kostet natürlich alles Geld. Und das heißt, falls ihr diesen Podcast irgendwie unterstützen wollt, falls ihr denkt, hey, das, das bringt mir irgendwie Spaß und anstatt mir jetzt irgendwie ein blödes Fernsehprogramm reinzuziehen, klicke ich mal den Podcast an. Wenn ihr das also irgendwie unterstützen wollt, ich habe auf der Seite, auf meiner Podcast-Seite jetzt Amazon-Links eingefügt. Das heißt, ihr könnt, wenn ihr, äh, wenn, wenn ihr Produkte bei Amazon kaufen wollt, Bücher oder was auch immer, wenn ihr das über meine Seite machen könntet, wäre ich auch total dankbar. Das funktioniert einfach so. Ihr geht auf meine Seite, ihr klickt dann auf die Links, kommt direkt zu Amazon und könnt da ohne Mehrkosten letztendlich dann eure Sachen kaufen. Für mich ist das so, ich kriege dann dadurch ein paar Prozente und kann dadurch dann auch mal einen Flug finanzieren, um den Podcast so weiter, weiter voranzutreiben. Das ist auf jeden Fall eine Möglichkeit. <lacht> ähm, mein heutiger Gast in der Sendung ist David C. Corton, ich sagte es schon, ich bin ein bisschen aufgeregt gewesen, weil es mein erster englischsprachiger Podcast war. David C. Corton ist, ist eine Koryphäe auf dem Gebiet internationaler Entwicklung, Ökologie, Ökonomie, hat Wirtschaft studiert, Psychologie, ist ein Wirtschaftsweiser in gewisser Hinsicht, ohne jetzt an eine Regierung gebunden zu sein oder eine bestimmte Ideologie. Und er hat äh, ein neues Buch rausgebracht, Change the Story, Change the Future, was jetzt gerade in Deutschland erschienen ist. Und ich bin ganz froh, dass er sich die Zeit genommen hat, mit mir ein bisschen über das Buch zu reden und über seine Arbeit. Bevor ich jetzt direkt überleite zu dem Gespräch mit David, hatte ich mir gedacht, dass es ganz hilfreich sein könnte, einen Auszug aus seinem neuen Buch einmal vorzulesen, um einen generellen Kontext für das Buch zu liefern und für das Gespräch. Ähm, das ist aus der Einleitung, aus dem Vorwort des Buches Change the Story, Change the Future, von, geschrieben von dem Co-Präsidenten des Club of Rome, dem Ernst-Ulrich von Weizsäcker, das ist der, für die, die es nicht wissen, das ist der Neffe des ehemaligen Bundespräsidenten Richard von Weizsäcker und Sohn des Physikers Karl Friedrich von Weizsäcker. Und der war so gut und hat ein ganz schönes Vorwort geschrieben, was ich euch jetzt mal kurz vorlesen werde. Der Club of Rome ist stolz, dass David Corton zu seinen Mitgliedern zählt. Er nimmt kein Blatt vor den Mund und nicht alle Leute mögen das. Wir schon, nicht zuletzt deshalb, weil sich die Welt in einem schrecklichen Zustand befindet. Ein Fortführen der gegenwärtigen Entwicklung wird, sowohl in sozialer als auch ökologischer Hinsicht, unvermeidlich zum Kollaps führen. Dies ist die Hauptaussage 
David Cortens. Nicht unbedingt eine neue Erkenntnis für den Club of Rome. Was indes neu ist an David Cottons Ansatz, ist die Betonung des Aspektes der Geschichte, der Story, die erforderlich ist, um unsere Geschichte, um unsere Gesellschaft in Richtung Nachhaltigkeit und Zukunftsfähigkeit zu führen. In seinen Worten, wenn wir einer falschen Geschichte folgen, dann erzeugen wir eine schlechte Zukunft. David beschreibt die vorherrschende Geschichte der globalen Wirtschaft als eine Geschichte des heiligen Geldes und heiliger Märkte, in der das Geld der definierende Wert der Menschheit ist, in der ein unregulierter globaler Markt als moralischer Kompass dient und in der die Zerstörung von Leben, um Geld zu erwirtschaften, als die Erzeugung von Wohlstand angesehen wird. Auf einer tieferen Ebene untersucht David die Implikation dreier grundlegender Kosmologien und damit unseren Geschichten des Ursprungs, der Entwicklung und der Bedeutung des Universums. Er identifiziert drei Kosmologien, die für unsere Zeit ganz entscheidend sind. Die Kosmologie des fernen Patriarchen, der monoistischen Religion wie des Judentums, des Christentums und des Islams. Die Geschichte der großen Maschine in Form eines mechanistischen Universums, welches über keinen Sinn oder Bedeutung verfügt, und die Kosmologie der mystischen Einheit, in der wir alle durch das zeitlose und ewige Eine miteinander verbunden sind. In der Kosmologie der großen Maschine verankert, unterstützt die Geschichte heiligen Geldes und heiliger Märkte eine globale Gesellschaft, die sich durch Selbstsüchtigkeit, Bedeutungslosigkeit, einen starken Glauben an die Kräfte des Marktes und durch die Konzentration auf Unternehmensmacht charakterisieren lässt. David plädiert für eine ökonomische Geschichte des heiligen Lebens und der lebendigen Erde, die auf der Kosmologie des lebendigen Universums basiert. In dieser Kosmologie wird jeder Mensch als ein intelligenter, sich selbst steuernder Teil eines bewussten, vernetzten und selbstorganisierenden Kosmos betrachtet, der sich auf einer Reise hin zu größerer Komplexität, Schönheit, Bewusstsein und Selbsterkenntnis befindet. All dies führt uns offenbar in mystische und gar esoterische Bereiche und es ist für gewöhnlich nicht die Denkweise des Club of Rome. Und doch erkennen wir die Stärke von Davids Argument an, dass die alten Geschichten uns eben nicht in eine bessere Zukunft, sondern noch mehr in Schwierigkeiten gebracht haben. Wir begrüßen neues Denken und wir begrüßen auch Davids Suche nach Sinn und Bedeutung sowie nach realistischen Strategien, um den vorherrschenden destruktiven Kräften entgegenzutreten, die wir in der Geschichte des heiligen Geldes und der heiligen Märkte beobachten können. Wir begrüßen überhaupt Initiativen, die versuchen, die Paradigmen der vorherrschenden Ökonomie zu verändern, wie etwa die New Economy Working Group, die von David Corton und seinen Kollegen ins Leben gerufen wurde. Es ist ein informelles, in den Vereinigten Staaten ansässiges Bündnis von Organisationen und Individuen, die vom Institute for Policy Studies, Studies koordiniert werden. Ihr Ziel ist es, eine mutige Vision zu verbreiten und Strategien für eine neue Wirtschaft zu verwirklichen, die für alle Menschen und lebenden Systeme funktioniert. Wir wissen natürlich um die großen Kontroversen, die mit einem Buch einhergehen werden, werden das den Sinn des Freihandelsabkommens hinterfragt, Wirtschaftsführer als gut bezahlte Diener geldgieriger Firmen bezeichnet und welches behauptet, dass die Geldökonomie letztendlich eine Ökonomie der Selbstzerstörung ist. Nicht alle Mitglieder des Club of Rome werden die Perspektive teilen. Überhaupt ist David Cottons Buch ein Bericht an den Club of Rome und nicht das formale Credo des Club of Rome.
Doch wir teilen die Überzeugung, dass die üblichen Strategien nicht länger für eine physisch begrenzte Welt mit fast 9 Milliarden Menschen funktionieren. Eine Welt, in der die Einkommensunterschiede immer größer werden und die Risiken für soziale Ausgrenzung beträchtlich sind. Wir begrüßen eine Diskussion über Davids Grundsatz, dass eine missverstandene Geschichte zu einer schlechten Zukunft führt und dass wir eine bessere Geschichte brauchen. Sein Vorschlag für eine neue Geschichte, eine Geschichte des heiligen Lebens und der lebendigen Erde, welche in der Kosmologie eines lebendigen Universums eingebettet ist, ist sowohl provokativ als auch ein höchst willkommener Beitrag in der Debatte über unsere Zukunft. Wir laden Sie herzlich ein, uns auf der Website www.clubofrome.org zu besuchen. September 2014, Ernst Ulrich von Weizsäcker und Andreas Wiegmann, Co-Präsidenten des Club of Rome. Mit diesen Worten leite ich direkt über zu unserem Interview. Ich wünsche, ihr habt ganz viel Freude dabei. Lasst es euch gut gehen. Hasta luego. Okay, okay. Well, then, then for the purpose of this interview, I start, I start again. So, uh, David, I'm, I'm very grateful that you joined me in this podcast. And, and for the German listeners, you a couple of words to your biography. You are like a, a best-selling author. You are a member of the Club of Rome. You are co-founder of um, the Yes magazine. And you have uh, 40 or more years experience in economics, in international development. Um, as far as I understand, you are not very eager to be called in Economist. That, that's correct. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because what most people understand is standard economics uh, is basically a combination of uh, of intellectual and moral corruption. Uh, it has very little to do with reality, and it's uh, promoting. It's simply promoting an ideology that uh, leads toward <clears throat> ever greater inequality destruction of democracy and uh, uh, destruction of the environment. So mm. I prefer not to be associated with that particular discipline. Mm. Uh, my own background, uh, you know, my academic background is uh, in, in business organizations. So I look at the economy as an institutional system, an organizing system, which is very different than the way uh, uh, most conventional economists think about it. Mm. There's, I don't know if you know it, there's a German word, it's called Wirtschaftsweise. It's roughly translated as a wise man in regard of economics. So, but the Germans use this word Wirtschaftsweise mostly for advisors for the government and not, for, mm. not actually for people who are, um, have a greater perspective on economics. And this is what I really find interesting because reading your book, you belong more to the real wise man of economics so well I, yeah i appreciate that uh, um yeah I, i think there is a uh, there may be a considerable difference between the united states and europe in this regard because uh, economists in the united states in particular i think have become you know in some ways very ideological but in other ways just simply servants of the uh, existing corporate uh, corporate rule mm. um, so 
there's certainly that difference, and I yes, I I would uh, I'd be honored to be uh, included within that category of of, of wise men considering the economy, <laughs> and that of course is is in line with the you know the the real intellectual traditions of economics, um, mm. and uh, you know people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo and the and the great thinkers who were really trying to understand the economy rather than promote a particular discipline or a particular uh, uh, a particular kind of ideology. Mm. So in, in your new book, which is out now in Germany, it's called Change the Story, Change the Future, you distinguish between different cosmologies, different narratives, and different ways of doing business in a way and grasping economics. Can you say some words on that particular issue? Well, yeah, it's a very. I, I hesitate only because it's a, it's such a very big topic. So mm. it's a kind of question of where does one start? Um, the, uh, you know, I guess the, the 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 big message of the book, it's, it starts with the thing that most people who are paying attention are well aware of that, uh, as a species, we are in very deep trouble. Uh, we are destroying the uh, the living earth on which our very existence depends, uh, and it relates back very much to a uh, an economic ideology uh, that that's not consistent with the reality either of our existence uh, or with what we know about uh, about values. Uh, and the values that are essential to having a uh, a healthy society. Hmm. So um, the book is trying to delve more deeply into the uh, to the issue of stories, um, because in many ways the the problem that we face uh, has to do with the story that economists tell, um, which is very misleading. Um, which misdefines wealth, that misdefines, misdefines the real nature of the economy and the purpose of the economy, um, and uh, you know, leads us to a very self-destructive uh, uh, set of behaviors, <clears throat> and also to the, uh, to the development of, uh, of institutional systems uh, that, that serve this very perverse ideology. Uh, and that by their very nature drive ever-increasing inequality and uh, uh, environmental destruction and political corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, so coming to understand, first of all, the, the importance of, of stories in our life and in shaping our behavior, uh, but then you know, recognizing uh, the distinction between destructive stories and the the kind of constructive stories that uh, that lead us to building healthy societies uh, grounded in in competition and a respect for and valuing of of life over money. Hmm. Um, so anyhow, we could uh, we could explore the many dimensions of this. It's it's a little difficult to. Uh, to stop. Um, no, I understand. But what's for me yeah. very interesting in um, in regard of your book was like the the connection between different ways of doing economics, different cosmologies, and personal narratives or stories. 
So that, that was new for me to say, uh, understand, okay, if we want to implement a new system or new economics, we have to change the way we perceive and uh, nature and, and uh, tell the story of who we are and, and, and what kind of society we live, what our values are. And only, uh, only when we change these narratives, these cosmologies, then we have a way to effectively change uh, the way of dealing with money. Yes. <laughs> and no, no. And, yes. And th 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 this, yeah. this I found particularly interesting because it's not mm -hmm. uh, something like okay, we have to we have to do some adjustment here or we have to uh, regulate tax there to change the system. But okay, we have to start everybody for themselves to change the way of perceiving and telling the story of money. Mm -hmm. And so everybody is in a way responsible for creating a new economics. I, y y yes. So <laughs> I'll, yes, I'll no, no. This is, that. Mm. Yeah, it, it starts with. It of course starts with recognizing the importance of story in shaping our behavior, and, and in a way, the you know what I refer to as story is our uh, our, our cultural frame, the uh, the the way we're raised to understand values and understand the nature of, uh, of the reality of our existence. Um, and, you know, I think we're going through a great human transition here in terms of that recognition, because traditionally we each grew up within our own culture um, and within our own language and simply took that as a given. Mm. That that there was a particular way of seeing the world, and since we only lived within our own culture and only experienced our own culture, uh, we didn't really recognize the the potential, the tremendous variety of our of our human stories, and embedded in that the the variety of our possibilities as humans. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, I, my own experience kind of exemplifies that. I. I grew up in a small town in the United States that was almost exclusively, uh, uh, you know, white uh, racially. Um, you know, it was all people who had grown up in a similar uh, American experience, um, kind of understood U.S. history, but not much about the, the world history, um, had very little exposure to any other languages. Um, so it was a very narrow way of seeing the world, and it never occurred to me that you know the, the, the stories or the cultural differences, what the impact are in terms of of how we see the world, each other, and how we behave. Mm. Um, and and I basically expected to that the rest of my life would be spent in the town where I grew up, but you know living in this particular time in history and being uh, exposed to particular influences, it turned out that, uh, uh, you know, I had an adult life that was totally out of, out of any sense of possibility that I had growing up of what my adult life would be like. Um, you know, rather than growing up, than staying in my hometown, uh, I ended up uh, working in the variety of the world's cultures. I spent... Uh, uh, you know, my first visit abroad, I went to Indonesia and was just absolutely immersed. I, you know, I stayed with Indonesians. Uh, my only uh, contact was with Indonesians, which is 
a culture, you know, extraordinarily different from our, our Western cultures. Um, and then my first real overseas assignment was in Ethiopia and Africa. Uh, again, a, a very distinctive culture and uh, uh, totally beyond anything I had previously experienced. And mm. then uh, later after that, uh, lived for a time in Central America, but working in countries throughout South America uh, and Mid-America, and then later living in, uh, in Asia and um, Philippines and Indonesia, and working on assignments throughout uh, much of the Asia region. And out of that, you, of course, become uh, really, uh, really impressed with and uh, a totally different frame that, uh, uh, you know, our, our language, the ways we grow up, our beliefs about, you know, cosmology, the basic nature of, of reality, how... How, you know, what is physical reality? Where where does that connect with uh, spiritual reality, with intelligence? Uh, and you begin to see that we you know we have these different stories that emerge out of religious beliefs that uh, that even science itself is is a product of stories. Yep. Uh, and part of our problem is that many of those stories tend to be extremely mechanistic. Yep. Um, and you know that comes out of the history of science that uh, the uh, the you know the the leaders in the kind of the scientific revolution and the uh, uh, the origins of modern science uh, felt that it was important to understand mechanism and so they you know they they kind of made a uh, they made a decision we will only recognize those things that are observable and measurable. Uh, which was very essential to science uh, uh, becoming the very useful uh, discipline that it is. But, you know, over time, what was, you know, a, a kind of chosen assumption uh, became a belief system and led to the denial of any, uh, uh, of the existence of intelligence or spirit or consciousness in the, in the universe. And that in turn, uh, shape the behavior of those who were steeped in modern education. Mm. We you know, cut us off from recognizing uh, major aspects of uh, of reality. And you know, one of the exciting things about our time is we break through the you know well not break through but we break through the the geographical barriers. And you know, like right now, you know, being able to uh, have a, a, a deep, immediate conversation between the two of us, between Europe and the United States, and just as a matter of course, mm. uh, you know, now living in a world that virtually any two individuals in the world, any place, uh, can have this kind of conversation with each other. Uh, that is so unprecedented in a human experience and uh, puts us in a position to choose our future. Uh, by conscious choice yep. as a species. Um, that's totally unprecedented in the human experience, totally changes our situation. Um, and it's also very timely because, of course, we are, we are organizing now as a species and 
dominantly, we're doing it in a way that is is threatening our very future. So uh, there's there's a lot of new understanding that we need to develop, and it it starts with the recognition that. Uh, uh, our, our stories shape our behavior as a global species, and we have to become conscious of those stories, and we also have to take, uh, take responsibility for our stories with a, with a recognition of their, of their consequences. Mm. Uh, and that, that's really what, you know, what, uh, what this book, uh, Change the Story, Change the Future, is about. Mm. Yeah, it's like what, what you're, of course, talking about is in regard of your personal history, the change of a more modern mindset to a more, a more pluralistic or postmodern mindset where you encounter different stories uh, from different cultures and um, different ways of dealing with, with money in, in that regard. So, so the have, have you ever thought about to, to uh, correlate these cosmologies which you are describing in your book with the epochs, the, the times we have experienced in the past like traditional Christianity, um, modernity with, with the industrialization and then postmodernity with the more uh, we are all connected and, and the sorts of things. We, we, we um, sh share our stories and we come together. Uh, all, all this is in a way reflected in your book, but, but have you consciously thought about this way? Uh, we, uh, very much so. Uh, you know, the, I'm a little less concerned with history <coughs> in this particular book, but uh, one of my previous books, uh, The Great Turning from Empire to Earth Community, was, uh, was really a, a historical examination of how how our stories changed over time and how that that shaped the uh, essentially the evolution of uh, of history and uh, and human societies mm. um, <clears throat> i think what you're suggesting is uh is quite true that uh, the you know every well it, it's basic to our human nature that we we seek we have a craving for meaning uh, and a craving to to understand uh, understand ourselves and understand all that exists around us hmm. uh, and so we're you know the, the, the only way we can understand them in a way is is through stories and share our understanding through stories so each people in their time uh, tend to develop one or some variety of, uh, of, of shared stories uh, that are meaningful to them in their particular context. Um, and most of those, most of those stories have elements of, of reality. Um, you know, I'm not a, a I, I couldn't immediately name any that have absolutely no connection to reality, hmm. but but they're mostly all partial, so they capture a part of reality. Hmm. Um, and w one of the things about our time that's distinctive and uh, cr makes this a moment of opportunity is that because of our communications capability and the ability to have conversations like we're having, uh, we can begin to to draw 
draw from all of these different experiences. Now, of mm. course, well, we can even reach back historically through through various historical texts and so forth. And uh, you know, instead of saying a particular a particular formulation is wrong, although <laughs> I would certainly say that much of economics, the way it formulates its story, is flat out wrong. But uh, for for from most uh, from most experiences and most stories, uh, there is some element of truth, hmm. uh, e- even in economics. And uh, the uh, the key is to be able to pick those pick out those elements of truth and then weave them into a new story that, hmm. uh, in the large sense, draws um, draws lessons from each of our religious traditions, draws lessons from uh, Modernity. indigenous, hmm. well, indigenous experience, hmm. and then you know the various aspects of modernity. And I, I assume you're referring particularly to the uh, you know to the scientific model, and hmm. and of course even within science we have it broken into all these isolated disciplines, uh, each of which has particular elements of truth, uh, none of which has the whole story. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the challenge of how do we uh, how do we collectively, as a species, uh, seek out, identify these truths, and weave them into a much larger unfolding story that is more uh, more appropriate to the particular needs of our time when mm-hmm. when we really have to rethink in the deepest way what who are we, what is what is the very purpose of our existence, and how do we? How, what does that mean for how we need to relate to one another and relate to the living earth that births and nourish, nourishes us? Yes, that's a, because that's that's yeah, basically the problem. If you if you look at the cosmology of the modernity, with the, you, you called it the story of the big machine, I guess, if yeah. I recall correctly, and there is some truth to this. But if if you take everything the story tells you for granted and lay it over all what you can perceive and what can you see, then then the pathologies are going to rise, because it's not the the ultimate description of of uh, the universe we are living in. It's only a part. But when we are in a way um, trying to impose that everything uh, is working like this, we we are facing like the problems. Uh, industrialization and capitalism has produced in the last 200 years, and this is yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah that machine, uh, that machine model, <coughs> where everything, is, you know, we, we try to d- explain everything in terms of uh, mechanistic relationships and cause and effect, essentially abs- absolves us of of responsibility of human beings for the mm. consequences of our own behavior. Um, and that is exceedingly dangerous at this uh, particular point in, in human experience. So, and you pro- you propose in a way to uh, to look oh, okay what what are the truths within the indigenous tribes within traditional uh, Christianity in the uh, industrialization capitalism pluralism and to 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 seek out the parts that work in a way and and put them all together so that we can actually change the uh, the, the future. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the reference to indigenous perspectives is, I think, particularly uh, crucial to this particular book. It's certainly, you know, in terms of my experience in writing it. 
because a major piece of the impetus came uh, from a, 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 a little retreat, a, a retreat that I was at, an intellectual retreat uh, in 2012, uh, just before the uh, Rio, uh, uh, the what Rio Plus 20 um, uh, conference. Mm. Uh, you know, re-looking at the whole set of, uh, of global environmental issues. And at this retreat, it was, it was a very privileged gathering for me to be part of. Um, it was a group primarily indigenous environmental leaders from around the world um, who were going to Rio to that meeting with their message. And the idea that they conveyed... Uh, in this retreat was that um, the, well, the Wall Street interests, the corporate interests were going to Rio with the message that, yes, nature is important. We must save her. And the best way to save her is to put a price on her. Now, these are, this is a pretty savvy group. Um, and they recognize the, you know, the indigenous group recognized immediately that this is part of a larger pattern mm. that is played out in terms of the whole, um, in a sense, colonization of uh, of indigenous cultures and indigenous lands. Um, that you, um, you know, if if you're putting a price on something, you're basically also privatizing it. So you pro- privatize, you commodify, you, uh, you know, ultimately. Uh, turn it into some kind of security and you trade it in the marketplace and so forth. Mm. And pretty soon you find that, uh, you know, it's, it's all just about making money. And, and what they were saying is, you know, earth is our sacred mother, mother. She burst, mm. the earth bursts and nourishes us. Uh, you know, our mother is not for sale. And, you know, as that sunk into my consciousness, I realized what an absolutely profound observation that was. Mm. That, you know, essentially, no matter how much money we can make from uh, raping the earth and destroying her her resources, um, that is that is essentially suicidal. Um, that there is no price that makes it worth, no financial price that makes it worth uh, destroying the living mother or the living earth that our very existence depends on. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, it's such an obvious insight at one level. Um, but another level, in terms of its contrast to how we live and the logic by which we uh, go about mining and exploiting earth, uh, it is a, an absolutely profound bit of wisdom. Now, <clears throat> that takes us into this whole question of, of uh, that you brought up several times of the relationship between money and life, mm. and the um, you know and the ways in which our how we deal <coughs> with that relationship mm. uh, lead us into the the devastation that we're currently experiencing. Um, and I find it fascinating, you know, relating this back to, uh, uh, to basic, uh, basic religious truths. 
Mm. So you take the uh, the Christian Bible. One of the one of my favorite verses is that uh, uh, is the one that says no 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 one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and Mammon. Now, if you think of God as a living spirit, and you think of Mammon as the worship of money, you know what that what that verse is essentially saying is you cannot serve both life and mm-hmm. money. Um, now that is absolutely the the profound truth that we must deal with uh, as as modern societies, mm-hmm. and you know led by conventional economics um, we we're basically using money as the metric by which we value life uh, which in a, it, it at one level is absolutely insane hmm. it take you know it takes us into the thing well what what is money well we're you know we're taught that money is wealth but what does that mean because when you actually step back, uh, you know, particularly in our modern society, uh, money is is nothing but a number. It's an accounting shit. It's a uh, it's a metric by which we agree as humans to uh, kind of divide up the real wealth of the world. Hmm. But it has abs- you know it not only has no value in itself no intrinsic value um, it, uh, it, it, uh, it 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 cannot be most of our money cannot be uh, discerned it's it's not even observable or uh, uh, detectable by anything outside of the human mind um, and of course, most of those numbers now are encoded in computers that mm. even uh, even our human mind can't uh, uh, can't read without uh, a mechanical <laughs> intermediary. So, yeah, if uh, it, it's it's entirely a made up system. So the idea that you know the more numbers we have stored, the bigger the numbers we have stored away in some uh, computer, the better off we are as a species. The richer is is as absurd as any uh, any belief could be and yet that is the whole foundation on which we base our economic policies of economic growth and uh, um, you know and <laughs> uh, practice the, yes. the teachings of conventional economics which well, interesting. I'd rather not be thought of as an economist <laughs> no the interesting thing is like when we go that way like uh, how do narratives and cosmologies produce certain ways of dealing with the world so the the what you are proposing in a way is to figure <coughs> out what kinds of narratives and cosmologies you're actually using uh, are they coming from traditional christianity for example or uh, modernity or postmodernity and to find ways of of changing them in in yourself my my question is how how do we change these narratives? How can we change our cosmologies to, to a more encompassing and more, more sustainable future? We maybe need to, uh, uh, to, to just bring out for a moment the, uh, uh, well, actually, the four, the four cosmologies that I outline in the book. Um, the, uh, you know, there, 
these are the ones that are most familiar to to Western society, and you know, kind of the first common framework. Excuse <coughs> me. That we have, uh, that we're familiar with in the Western culture, is what I call the the, the distant patriarch. Hmm. Uh, this is the uh, the conventional story of of the God who uh, lives apart from His creation in a place called heaven, uh, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and who basically created all that is with a wave of his hand, uh, and uh, is ultimately in control of all being. Um, now, one of the things I've come to realize is that that sets up a frame, a very essentially a very authoritarian frame, uh, it also, in some ways, have, absolves us of responsibility for the outcomes of our actions because ultimately they are all the, the choice of this uh, supreme being. Um, and within the within the Christian world, it sets up a frame of those who are most pure, or those who are most worthy, are those who are closest to God. Uh, and you know, in the Calvinist tradition in the United States, which is only implicit in many other. Uh, uh, formulations is the idea that uh, obviously those people within that framework, those people who hold the greatest power and the greatest wealth, are the most valued by you know the the most favored by God for mm. for whatever reason. So therefore, are inherently worthy of our respect. That actually is one of the you know that story in that way and in that interpretation um, affirms our current economic system. Anyhow, that's the distant patriarch story. The the second familiar story is the uh, the grand machine of science. That uh, uh, you know, it all started with the with the Big Bang, but everything uh, everything that has played out since then is all a matter of of mechanism, a combination of of mechanism and chance, mm. and that that somehow resulted in the unfolding of the universe uh, and the the founding of, of carbon-based life and evolution of, on Earth and so forth, uh, and the attempt to explain it all uh, in terms of mechanistic causality and chance, uh, which in itself, if you limit it to that, is seems pretty absurd in itself because the the natural dynamic of uh, uh, of the material world is to um, is not to move toward greater complexity, but to move toward uh, uh, toward toward less complexity mm -hmm. and, and disintegration. Uh, but in a sense, the whole of creation works exactly opposite of that, uh, in the direction of negative entropy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, as I mentioned, that of course also absolves us of responsibility for our. Uh, for our behavior, because it's all just mechanistic, and the kind of psychology that I learned when I was in college, or at least you know one one theory, was they're all just stimulus response mechanisms, uh, you know, devoid of real choice, devoid of real intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now, a third cosmology that's familiar is that it is all uh, is the mystical unity that uh, uh, all all being is uh, uh, is is one that our separation is an illusion and that 
our goal is purely a spiritual goal to meld our individuality back into the unity and essentially escape from rea- from what we experience as material reality. Mm-hmm. Um, that also is a kind of uh, denial of responsibility for the whole. Well, it's a little bit new agey, no? Yeah, it's 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 fairly uh, uh, fairly new agey. Now, the the cosmology that I think is I believe is emerging, uh, and it's emerging from all these different fields, uh, and it, it involves the 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 discerning of truths in each of the various traditions and cosmologies um, and the larger picture the larger story uh, I refer to as the living universe uh, cosmology that suggests that well perhaps it did all begin with a, a spiritual unity but the our separation or individuality is not a mistake uh, it is actually a result that that what this is about is that uh, is that consciousness, that spirit, that intelligence, that unitary intelligence had in a sense the same drive to to know itself, to become that is integral to our uh, our, our our human nature, mm. uh, so central to our own being. And that you cannot really know yourself without another, mm. <laughs> with just a unity. So, um, in the desire to know itself, it burst forth in this cloud of energy particles uh, that have since been organizing, have been learning, have been evolving, creating uh, a reality that that unfolds toward ever greater complexity, beauty, awareness, and possibility. Um, and that that is consistent with the data of science. Um, it is also consistent with the, um, certainly with the Christian uh, creation story of that just wasn't created in seven days, it, but uh, it did it did unfold. And it, but recognizing that, as we now know through science, it continues to unfold. Mm. Um, and if you get beyond the Newtonian uh, physics, which has a lot to teach us, but you get into uh, into uh, quantum physics, um, you you see that. In some senses, uh, the material world is an illusion. What appears to be solid is not solid at all, but is uh, uh, mo- mo- energy particles in constant motion hmm. uh, that join together in ever more complex uh, atoms and molecules and star systems, and uh, and then the, you know the same kind of the same thrust or direction mm. uh, that comes out in uh, uh, in in the evolution of, of biological life. This uh, all resembles a little bit uh, the integral philosophy. I don't know if you heard of it from Ken Wilber. Do you, do you know yeah. this guy? Yeah. So it, it's 
it is related to that, and uh, um, I think he's you know he's got a lot of people interested in in elements of of that. Yeah, um, Stuart Kaufman as well. It's not only Ken Wilber, but I, um, when I was reading your book, uh, um, Stuart Kaufman and his complexity theory ca came yes. to mind. James Lovelock uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and the Gaia system and everything belongs together. It's yeah, there's. I mean, there's there are many many strands of thought that uh, that contribute to this, and it's one of the one of the things that I've one of the reasons I find hope uh, that. Uh, you know, you 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 see this deeper understanding evolving out of the the leading edges of science, um, certainly out of the more uh, more thoughtful, exploratory religious uh, inquiry. Um, you find it among some of the leading thought leaders and schools of theology. Um, it's just bursting out all over the place. And at the deepest level, one of the things we recognize is that it. It is it is this it is the story that I believe lives in the human heart. Hmm. Uh, it is, and, and you know I find this as I get into conversations like this with with people like yourself. Um, it's it, it's it's a frame that that resonates very deeply, uh, and and feels very familiar, and that. Uh, you know, if we haven't been so alienated from our, our, our ourselves in a way, uh, the deepest aspects of our nature, um, we recognize it. Hmm. Now, this is where the hope lies for, for human change, that if we, uh, you know, what I find is, you know, what I do and, and, and really the key, the key of, the, of the book, Change the Story, Change the Future, is there's nothing in that book that a thoughtful person will find at all new. Mm. Um, but what I'm doing is simply affirming that which most people deep in their hearts know. In a way, that gives us permission to, to speak it, mm. to share it. Um, and in the process of sharing it, we find that you know what we thought was our own lonely thought because we don't see it reflected in the media or mm. in the uh, <clears throat> you know the things that we learned in school or even most of what we hear in uh, in, in church or religious uh, uh, religious institutions. Um, it it holding that story does not mean that we're crazy or out of step. Mm. <laughs> uh, it means that we are, in fact, in touch with some, something much deeper than our, our visible culture uh, recognizes. Hmm. So, now, this is, so this is your, your, the cause for your optimism, in a way, this, this um, aspect of uh, all, um, emerging new solutions and um, of, of new ways of, of, of dealing with our problems. I, 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 I ask this because I recently read an article from a German philosopher. He's called Thomas Metzinger. He's really famous mm. here in Germany. I don't know if you know him. And he's, he has like a sort of bleak sense uh, for our future. He says mm, that he thinks that we as a species... Um, in, in context of the ecological crisis, of the economic crisis, and 
all of this, that we will um, sense ourselves as a failing species and that we will have to live with it, that we are failing to deal with, with our problems. So this is like, like the other way. So you seem to me like an optimist that, that <laughs> do, do, do we have actually have a chance for, for a better fu uh, future? So well, I mean, it, it starts with recognizing that we're on a bad path, and it's because we uh, uh, we're we're organizing around partial or uh, uh, or even false stories. Uh, I mean, that's that's the starting point for change. Now, the question is whether we have we have enough time to navigate the. Uh, uh, the turning that's required both to to wake up culturally and then to recognize the implications of it and you know deeply transform our institutions uh, I mean the you know the, the stories about how this connects in with the economy uh, we have gotten so tied up uh, in in the worship of money and the pursuit of money and you know, money does does have its influence. It is the, as I said, it's a power chip. It's the system by which we uh, allocate power in modern society. Hmm. And and of course, we've got a financial system that is so totally out of control that the the, the people who are making the huge, you know, acquiring the huge financial fortunes, uh, accumulating all those uh, those numbers on the computer hard drive as their credits. Uh, are are basically obsessed with uh, with making money, and we're essentially converting life, the 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 lives of our working people, the lives of the lives of all the beings that constitute the the living Earth community, the nature hmm. uh, that maintain the 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 generative processes by which the planet maintains the conditions essential to life, our climate patterns, our uh, our soils, our the chemical composition of the air and our oceans, and so forth. Uh, those are all being sacrificed uh, to the the making of money. Uh, so, you know, we're we're literally turning uh, turning real wealth of the living planet of society uh, into numbers on computer hard drives. And economists keep telling us, "Hey, that's the, the economy is succeeding. We're getting richer and richer." As in fact, we get poorer and poorer. Hmm. Uh, and Unless we break out of that story uh, and break out very quickly, uh, we're you know we're basically finished as a species. We mm. seal you our said, fate. You said it is a matter, it's a question of time in a way, but in a way, uh, it's more the question if we as a species can can muster the will to to change. Yeah. So, but but the the question is okay. We we have the chance to change the future, but. Do you think that that we will muster the will to to change our future, to change the narratives, to change the way we're dealing with economic, uh, uh, ecologic questions? I mean, we have now the climate conference in Paris, and which is going south, as far as I um, <laughs> um, reading the newspaper. So, yeah. but um, do do you think we can change, or we will change? Well, see. The my response to that question is a, you know, it's a very real question. Um, but he, you know, here's the way I look at it. We can answer that in one of two ways, and our answer is a choice as well. Uh, we can say, no, we, 
it's it's too late. Uh, we're too stupid. We're too inflexible. Our institutions are too many powerful interests. Uh, uh, we're not going to make it. And there's a very strong, you know, very strong argument on that side. Or we can say, well, um, I have to believe that we still have time and that we do have the capacity to change. And that it is my responsibility to do everything I can to advance that change. Now you look at the implications of those two choices. The first choice, the one it's already too late, it's all over, uh, creates a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. because it means we don't try, we give up. Uh, and our only hope comes in, in trying. So I believe the only intelligent answer to that question is, I don't know whether we're going to make it. I don't know whether we have time or have the intelligence or the will. Hmm. But I have to act on the belief that we do. And act according. Employ the narrative that we can do. Employ it. the narrative, exactly. That that's, that's part of the narrative that we have to embrace. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, no fudging that, well, we'll get around to it sometime and you know, by the end of the century or maybe the next century. No, that's too late. That won't work. Uh, we've, we've got to mobilize now, immediately, mm. with everything that we can put behind it. And we may still be too late. Uh, but the other piece of this that's crucial is that the actions that we have to take to attempt to forestall a complete environmental, social, and... Um, economic collapse are the same things that we have to do to moderate the consequences, try to, you know, when the collapse comes, try to try to survive. Uh, the change, the changes in either direction are, you know, f well, for either, uh, either outcome are essentially the same. That we basically have to, we have to work to bring ourselves our, you know, our human society into balance with the generative capacities of living Earth. Mm. We have to figure out how to share the, the generative capacities of a living Earth, not only among ourselves to meet the needs of all humans so that we don't uh, get into constant wars uh, with ourselves, uh, and we have to take into account the needs of the rest of nature because it is the organization of all the earth species that create and maintain the conditions essential to our own existence. Hmm. Um, so we have to, all of this has to be done and learning to organize the way life organizes. And once you begin to understand living systems, you recognize that the decision making is always local in, in a living system. Hmm. You know, it plays out in integrated uh, systems and, you know, various kinds of holarchy, but the, uh, the primary decision-making is, is local. Hmm. Now, this is where we've got to localize our economies. We have to, again, nature is self-reliant within each, um, uh, each geographical uh, space, right down into the micro spaces in the soil. Uh, you know, life exists on whatever is the 
the local supplies of, of energy, water, uh, nutrients, uh, mm. and available information. Now, this is the exact opposite of the global economy, which organizes around a global financial markets, which is all <laughs> comprised of nothing but these, uh, these invisible numbers. Mm. Uh, the, the power uh, is global. The, uh, the, decision, uh, the, the decisions are totally uh, detached from mm. any kind of uh, you know, local consequences and so forth. Um, so the, the magnitude of the system change, the economic change, uh, is itself totally daunting. But again, you come back and you see what's happening, that uh, you know, people all over the world are waking up to the need to rebuild their local economies, uh, to you know, change the way we grow food so that it is uh, nourishing and replenishing uh, the soils rather than depleting them of nutrients and of mm. their, the b- b- capacity of their biological systems, uh, that we've got to be managing our, our water totally differently. Uh, we need to reduce our carbon uh, impact on the on the on the on the climate on our weather systems, so mm. that uh, the the natural generative systems by which Earth replenishes its fresh water and distributes it out across the Earth uh, can restore themselves. Uh, this is a huge shift, but it you know it comes down at the foundation to waking up to the very simple and obvious. Uh, awareness that we humans are living beings mm. born of and nourished by a living earth itself born of a living universe um, but let me ask one thing um, you, um, in, in regard of local versus global so I've, I've many friends many very smart young people who, who are trying something new just come out of the university or and at trying to live in another way and they are constantly under pressure from from this capitalistic system in which we are living mm-hmm. and uh, get they are get dragged down because I, I mean as a young man you you can you can um, prevail for, for a couple of time I guess but it wears yeah. it wears down so <clears throat> And and it's it's a constant fighting, and everybody has like financial problems because mm-hmm. the the ways uh, of of new economics are not yet employed. So the the young people are like one of the first generations between two systems, between the the current system, the capitalistic system, f- for example, and mm-hmm. like a, a, a new way. So they they are suffering the most, the these young people. So so what what uh, what can you tell them? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, what do you, you say I, is do, do, do you know what I mean? It's like... Oh, I, I do. It's, uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, you know, they are the, uh, they are the new pioneers. The, uh, <clears throat> I mean, all I can do is say they're on, they're on exactly the right path. And, you know, our whole future as, uh, as a society, as a civilization, as a species depends on, uh, on their success. But this, this kind of transition is never, uh, um, well, at least rarely, comes, comes easily. Um, but the very fact that they find themselves called to take this action is, is the major source of hope. Um, and we've all got to be working to um, help share their story, as, as you're doing with this podcast. Um, 
that these these are the people that are worthy of support, not the uh, not the hedge fund managers and uh, private equity managers and the folks that are playing games with our lives mm. uh, to to their own narrow advantage. Um, and you know it's it's all part of the shift of you know these these young folks are are working to change the story in a very practical uh, visible experiential way mm. uh, and of course we have you know part of our hope lies in the fact that people are are doing this literally all over the world mm. um, and that it's not just in uh, in farming and the land it's uh you know the alternative energy sources. It's uh, experimenting with cooperative forms of ownership, hmm. um, and uh, you know, again, coming down to the core, recognizing that the you know the real value is comes in life, and that we need to that needs to be to be recognized. So we hmm. need we need economic institutions that favor the local we also need uh you know the whole um uh well <laughs> i mean you begin to get at all things that change we need it we need a new we need a new story the living universe story uh we need a whole new economics uh, and of course there are also student movements that are uh, becoming increasingly international uh out of the center of the locus is in england um but challenging the, the conventional economic theories and in, in, in discipline, uh, calling for a fundamental transformation of uh, of economics. And other groups are working on developing a you know a true ecological economics that starts hmm. with living earth and you know living living people, living communities. Hmm. Uh, now another thing we haven't touched on is the whole the whole legal system. Uh, which needs to be turned on its head. Uh, you, you know, it's 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 again a self-evident truth that without nature, there are no people, hmm. and without people, there are no corporations. And yet, we have a legal system that gives corporations more rights than people, and gives nature no rights at all. Hmm. Um, now, again, this is uh, this it's illogical um, hmm. and it's insane. Um, and of course, we've got, uh, you know, we've got our own uh, President Obama here in the United States pushing these uh, these new trade agreements with uh, the, you know, the in Asia. Uh, well, one one around the Pacific Ocean and one around the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, you know, these trade agreements are, are are they're not about trade hardly at all. They're about corporate rights. And they're about further securing into the legal systems of the entire planet uh, the idea that, that that corporate rights trump all other rights. If if a corporation thinks it can uh, can make money uh, doing harm to people and to nature, uh, then that should be their protected right to do that. And no country has a right to. Uh, uh, to impose any contrary rules or laws, mm. uh, uh, you know, this, you know, I, <laughs> I've been a big Obama supporter up to this point, but, uh, 
it, it, it's like he's uh, given up on all principle or he's totally sold out to, to the Wall Street interests. Mm. Uh, and I know, you know, I know people in, uh, in Europe are, uh, are up in arms about the, uh, uh, the Atlantic Agreement, and we're seeing more and more uh, pressure building against mm. the, the, uh, uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Agreement. Uh, this is the, something you know, like which, uh, which I have uh, noticed just lately how much uh, social constructivism and the, the employment of narratives ha has changed American politics. I, I actually don't know what to believe uh, <laughs> of o Obama anymore. It's so weird because yeah. um, he can tell one thing and do something other. And, and as far as I understand, it started somewhere with Nixon. And, and the whole Watergate mm -hmm. thing, and it's, it's so weird because uh, they, they, they can basically tell everything and do completely the opposite. So, and as a, as yeah. a, citizen, as a citizen, you stand there and, uh, and, and looking in awe how, how, how this whole thing works. It's, it's weird, at, at least for me as a, as a yeah. bystander. Hmm? Well, I can tell you it's weird living here. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's, I mean, the... The political forces are so powerful, and of course, anyone who gets into a position of U.S. presidency is, you know, is just surrounded by by power interests. Mm. And of course, to get elected, you have to raise massive amounts of money, um, and it it warps people. I mean, I think I think of Al Gore, uh, you know, our former vice president here, mm. uh, who ran for president. You know, before he, well, he was vice president uh, under Clinton, and before he was vice president, he was, you know, a leading uh, spokesperson for environmental issues. Hmm. And, you know, when he was elected, he thought, wow, that, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're on our way. This is going to change. He's, hmm. uh, he's a real believer in uh in nature and equity and so forth. And then once he got in, he became a leading ad advocate for the North America Free Trade Agreement, which was the oh, really? mm. the kind of the precursor to all these devastating uh, uh, corporate rights agreements. And, you know, he absolutely championed that. And, you know, when he was representing the United States at climate conferences, uh, you know, a lot of people think he was basically undermining him, uh, you know, was pushing the corporate line. And then he, you know, he ran for president subsequently and lost to George Bush in a, uh, an election. In a weird way. An election fraud. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was an absolutely rigged uh, vote count. And uh, so having lost, then he turned back to the environment and he's back again to being a, a leading advocate for the environment so so what happened when he was in office uh, why why did he completely abandon his principles um, mm. you know the other thing that happened during that administration was they got rid of what we call the Glass-Steagall which was uh, you know a major set of laws that uh, that held Wall Street to some degree of accountability, public mm. accountability, and those were all stripped away, uh, which prepared the way for the 2008 financial crash. Um, now, I know it's, uh, it's a weird world. Um, 
it's so, movement, yes. Mm -hmm. And our, you know, our political—it's—it you know, all relates to the just the ex extreme corruption of our political systems. Uh, they are so so corrupted by money and by financial interests, and it's it's one of the reasons why, you know, democracy—I mean, real democracy, uh, participatory democracy—that goes way beyond just uh, voting for a candidate once every couple of years. Uh, is is so foundational hmm. but that also of course is part of the you know part of the 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 youth movement the millennials uh the uh uh the you know they're you know they're experimenting with you know radically democratic forms of uh of organization uh, you know we're we're seeing just a, a bursting forth of interest in various forms of cooperative ownership um, mm. where, you know, the thing about co-op, well, the thing about Wall Street is it advances the most extreme forms of absentee ownership, um, which completely disconnects the powers of ownership from the consequences. Now, when you have cooperative ownership, you have, you know, ownership in the hands of people who are living and working in the firm and in the communities where the firm operates. So there's a real connection between the exercise of the powers of ownership and the consequences for both the firm and the community and the consequences of the firm's impact on the community. Hmm. You know, these are all just basic, basic kinds of organizational principles, and they also connect with and support the ideas of... Um, you know, of, of the localization of decision-making um, mm. and power, but also within, within a recognition, a, a, you know, again, this is, you know, act locally, think globally, uh, you know, recognition that, that the locals are all interdependent too and that we all have to be conscious in our local decisions uh, to not externalize our costs or, externalize the negative consequences of our actions on others uh, mm. which again is part of recognizing that you know as, as we're moving uh, we survive and prosper only as a global species ultimately even though our primary points of, of action are uh, have have to be local as because it means we have to we have to learn to live in ways that absolutely adapt to but also support and maintain the health of our of our local ecosystem. Mm. The the interesting thing is uh, when I was reading your book, I was re realizing that I live in an eco village like uh, the one you are describing in your book. It's like I don't know if, if I told you I'm, I'm uh, living in a small island beside Spain. It's called Mallorca. And, oh. uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I live in the center of Mallorca. So there's there are no tourists and there's little industry. Mm -hmm. But in, in the in the village, Senseis, um there are all these um, young people who are coming from Madrid or Barcelona who, who had a career as uh, in philosophy or with the television who, uh, and who got fed up with the system and started uh -huh. something new here. And it's called Bank del Tiempo. It's like a way of exchanging goods with deeds, for example. So when... Uh, there's like a blackboard and yeah, if, if I need somebody to uh, take care of my garden, I can offer, for example, 
goods which uh, which I'm growing in my garden. So, oh, wonderful! Uh, so, Eco Village, which you're describing, this is very interesting. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that you know that's that's really the process of taking back control of our lives and our economies and the the distinction between a you know a wage and a livelihood. Uh, you know, th one of the things I learned in my work in international development, I came to recognize that most of what we call economic development uh, and the the driving of GDP growth is mm. really just the the monetization of human relationships. Mm. Things that we used to do just because we were neighbors and uh, you know family and living together, we uh, we now pay money for and as this played out in low-income countries, what it basically meant was that people who were growing their own food and exchanging services with their neighbors, is you know, basically the model that you're uh, uh, developing now, uh, that those relationships were broken down, that people were separated from their land and they were separated from each other. And to get the basic necessities, uh, they had to get money that they could only get from the people who own the businesses that uh, could employ them mm. and you know increasingly then it comes down to the people who control the the creation and allocation of the credits we call money um, and that that gives those people absolute power and it reduces everybody else to serfdom mm. now what what you guys are doing on your island <laughs> is uh, reclaiming your lives your uh your repudiating your dependence on on money and restoring these ways of uh, of living uh it's not easy center... I'm, I'm i'm not saying it's easy i am no uh, this very hard work and and little money but but you know somehow it works like magic so yeah and and i assume that uh that the people who are involved in it are a lot happier and uh and enjoying their their lives and relationships in ways that they did not before. This is true. Mm. This so is true. Uh, you 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 are very much on the uh, on the leading edge, mm. and it may be that uh, uh, that you've got a real advantage living on an island that's uh, that's actually fairly isolated. Mm. Um, no, Barcelona. I guess Barcelona is a whole different thing. So, but but it's like uh, it's it's. In a way, very traditional Mallorca. So, but but yeah. there are these pockets of where where something new can grow because it's undisturbed from capitalism in a way. So yeah. there there comes in play this 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 Banco del Tiempo. Mm -hmm. And very interesting. Yeah, well, but yes. Well, I mean that's I mean and that's that's the way this kind of deeper change starts because you you know you have these little centers popping up all around the world and they you know they first in some ways to succeed they have to be in slightly more isolated settings mm. uh, but then as they get a foothold they become stronger and eventually they begin to connect to each other and ultimately they uh, they can displace the dominant system mm. but uh, uh, for our listeners you don't you're, you're not saying that money is in itself bad it's uh, where we dealing with money I, I find this important to emphasize yes. it's very important I mean some uh, some rather ill-informed people listen to what I'm saying and they say, oh, he's trying to do away with money and 
No, it's absolutely not. Um, they, they totally missed the point, either uh, <laughs> either out of error or intention. Um, mm. No, I mean you're uh, you know having having some medium of exchange uh, that allows us to to relate beyond just our immediate personal relationships and even to uh, kind of keep accounts among ourselves uh, can be very useful hmm. but it's the rec- the important thing is recognizing that the money is a a medium of exchange it is not wealth hmm. That's do, the do, do you do you see in Bernie Sanders like uh, an agent of, of a new way of, of living, of a new of a system change in a way? No, I do. I th- I think so. And and of course I've I've, <laughs> you know, I've been wrong before. Was I, as I was wrong on uh, on Al Gore when he uh, got into office. But uh, you know Bernie's uh, Bernie's whole life has been consistent around these these values and the frames so uh, you know I think more than any of our other politicians for a very long time in the United States that uh, that he's about the most authentic uh, mm. person we've we've seen and uh, perhaps well, the I most guess authentic Trump, likely Donald Trump believes he is authentic as well in a way with Who? his Not oh, Trump, Donald Trump! <laughs> yeah, I think in a way he he thinks he's uh, authentic as well. Like he's like an agent of the big machine. So, um, what could yeah. go wrong? No? What could go wrong? <laughs> well, uh, to put it bluntly, I think uh, I think Donald Trump would uh, fit in the category of the psychopath. Uh, he's totally out of touch with any reality but his own, uh, and as is about as self-centered and inclined to be abusive of power as uh, as most anybody you'll find in our modern society. Um, mm. So I, it, you know, I can I can sort of understand in a very perverted way why some people are drawn to him, but uh, um, it's uh, you know it's 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 very very dangerous. Uh, I mean, he. You know, there there are some people that you can be absolutely certain they will abuse whatever power they have, uh, and uh, he he exemplifies that. What what are your predictions? Who will who will prevail in the presidential um, race in the United States? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, it. You know, if one were going to uh, going to place a bet, uh, I guess I'd probably place my bet on Hillary. Um, but uh, you know, given given her background and the record of her husband, who uh, I totally believed in at one point, um, but whose biggest, in some ways, biggest accomplishments were the. Uh, uh, NAFTA and the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which have had just devastating consequences for this the. This was the um, trade agreement between Mexico and America, no? Yeah, Or Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Mm. Uh, mm. It, uh, you know, it was the forerunner of, of of the agreements they're trying to put through now. Um, it had devastating consequences for uh, 
the United States and for uh, for the poor in in Mexico. Uh, for, for 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 an outsider, for me, can you can you elaborate on that for, for a moment? Why why was that bad? This NAFTA agreement. Uh, oh wow, where to start? <laughs> Uh, well, one, it uh, it supported massive outsourcing of jobs from the United States to uh, uh, sweatshops in the Maquiladoras along the, the edges of Mexico, uh, which became environmental disasters. Uh, the people who worked in the Maquiladoras, many of them were were forced off of the uh, of the farms in in Mexico. Uh, you know, it's totally disrupted the 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 agricultural sector and uh, um, you know d destroyed the lives of people who you know, who made their living from the land who who had strong sense of uh, of community and place um, you know if you're you know you th you, you find you know when when the money system takes over and people are first of all pushed into wage slavery uh, you know devoting their whole lives to to nothing but jobs that that even at their best pay too little to uh, uh, to 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 more than barely survive and then they start getting dependent on on debt so you're essentially again borrowing from people who control the uh, um, control the creation allocation of money the banking system so, in, in a way, you're pushed ever more into a combination of wage slavery and debt slavery. Uh, it's not quite the same as uh, the traditional forms of, uh, of slavery, where you actually lived in physical chains, but it is the modern analog, uh, and it is far from a, uh, a foundation of, of a humane uh, and just society. Mm. So, but that's you know that's where we're going, and it's all in the name of the free market, and uh, we are told that this is the ultimate human liberty. Um, you know, again back to the story. Mm. You know. No, um, I don't know. If one one last thing. I don't know if you if you have read the book. It's called um, uh, the Renegade History of the United States by Thaddeus Russell. No, and, I haven't. And, and it's a fantastic book. He's a um, professor at Occidental College, I guess. Uh -huh. And what, what he does in the book is uh, a telling, a, re a retelling of American history, uh, uh -huh. but with a new narrative. So uh -huh. he, he's not the telling the story from the point of the big man and the big events, yeah. but from the point of um, the slaves, the point of the um, criminal people the, the 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 point of view from from the prostitutes and everything uh -huh. and he, he um, tells a different story how um, for example <coughs> um, the um, movement which liberates the slavery uh, the slaves in, in the 18th century um, put more shackles on them because now where they were free they had to work more uh, and to work like the white man in a way which mm -hmm. for them was far more uh, sometimes harder than, than to live on a, on, on a plantage. 
So wow. and, so and and this is um, the the way when when this this uh, industrial age got got the hands on like like America and and the Lutheran conception of work is good, work hard, and it doesn't matter how much money you get. Um, um, got got his hands on the minds of the people in a way, and this is a very interesting book. <coughs> because what was the title again? Uh, a, a renegade history of the United States mm -hmm. um, from Thaddeus Russell. I, if, if you're interested, I can I can email the the title to you because because I'm I'm so interested in the way uh, how how relative narratives in a way are. Yeah. So so I, I read your book and and I read this book and a couple of other books about narrative psychology. It's, it's very interesting how. Uh, this this aspect that we can choose which narratives we we want to use and and mm -hmm. this we talked about this 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 may be our 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 chance for the future this consciousness of yeah well, be, become, just becoming aware that we are responsible for our own narratives and the choice mm. of narrative that by which we live um, that's a big that's a big step forward mm. um and of course, as we started out, uh, th that awareness is new. Uh, you know, it's, uh, as we grow up in our own cultures, it's it's not something we even think about or aware of that uh, uh, that there are multiple narratives, and choosing them is uh, is a basic personal responsibility. Mm. Yes, David. I guess um, we're coming to an end of our podcast. Mm -hmm. It's uh, been a great, great joy. Quite fascinating. It's certainly not the direction I expected it to go in. <laughs> no, no, me neither. But, but um, I'm, I'm really happy. So the, the, uh, mm -hmm. the start was a little bit rusty on my part, but uh, I got in the saddle. I don't know if, if you can say it like this, and then. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. every, everything was better. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out well. Perfect. Yes, this is the right expression. So, David, thank you very much for doing this. Your book is available now in in bookstores in Germany. You know, some of the things we've gotten into are pretty deep, but it may be a little misleading to uh, uh, people who are listening that uh, the the book itself is the. Uh, is the shortest major book that I've written, and it is also the most accessible. I've, I've put a lot of time and effort into uh, making it extremely readable and mm. uh, and short. Uh, and I've you know I've had people tell me that uh, they've you know they've read it for a third time because they just keep getting more and more out of it. And uh, it, it it is a book that you you can read multiple times so yeah because it's so dense so there's so so much information uh it's it's um it's nearly impossible to 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 grasp it all at once i guess yeah i'd be careful with the term dense because that makes it sound like it's difficult to uh, to understand uh, you know i come back and emphasize that uh it's i've tried to keep it in very simple language and mm. uh, uh and that also there's there's nothing there's nothing in it that most thoughtful people don't already know. Uh, mm. that, that what it what it contributes is helping 
people see the connections between the different pieces of what they know. Mm. Um, that uh, that uh, that I think is you know where the major contribution of my writing, to the extent there is a contribution, where that comes. So people no, should. So not it's a it's, it's a well a pretty personal book. No, it's uh, like yeah. a big chapter is about how you came about to to write this book, how uh, your your story in a way, mm -hmm. which which informed the book, and to see how how um, your your own narratives changed in the, in the course of the years. Yeah, it is a very personal book in that standpoint. It's not uh, not academic in the sense of just you know a compilation of academic sources that. Mm. Uh, It, it grows out of my own experience, my own journey, uh, and my own quest to, uh, uh, to, to, to understand the, the events that, uh, that I've experienced throughout my life and the, uh, uh, understand the, the, the cultures and their meaning. And the, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's just been an, it's been an extraordinary life journey. Uh, and, uh, trying to share that and the, and the lessons of it so mm. I, which is the I, best requirement for being wise i guess <laughs> no? i guess so <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for the interview it's been a delight of course um <laughs> no, 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 no.